we're internet people. We spend just ridiculous amounts of time on the internet, which is great, has many benefits, but creates blind spots. Like as an adult, it's valuable to like be in touch with what you want and to go for it. Being a creative person, an artist, a knowledge worker now is a performance art. Definitely one of the, the, the deepest interviews I've done. Well, Tiago, thank you so much for coming here today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I mean, it's it's really special to do this in person. Yeah, so I want to start with last night. Last night you had a meetup and you saw the people who you've impacted at a deep level. What did that feel like exactly? It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. These meetups are the highlights of my year because it's just unlike anything. It's unlike a YouTube comment or an email or something. Those are all like these digital artifacts these messages you're receiving but when you when i when i look into someone's eyes and they tell me the impact the course had or the blog or the youtube videos had on their lives it's just i mean it's this moment of just incredible um meaning what was were there any impactful stories or or anything that came out of it that surprised you i think that was my computer mark it was updating you can just close it (laughs) I love it. Sponsored by Apple. <laughs> <laughs> that was the sound of Tiago having an insight. <laughs> Every time I have an idea, that sound happens. <laughs> Sorry, could you ask that again? Yeah, so were there any surprising moments from the meetup? Yeah, I know you also did one in London as well. Yeah, oh my gosh, it's nothing but surprises. Uh, one woman, her name was Two, she said she, she's been, a, in her own words, a mom the past 10 years and now is getting back into the workforce. And she said this was her first kind of foray onto like the internet, into the business world, was taking a course. And she said she found another woman in the cohort, because we teach the, co- the course in cohorts, who was Vietnamese like her. And they got on a Zoom call and, and talked for five hours. She said it was like finding her soulmate. Wow. Completely different ages, different backgrounds, like shared, you know, context of being Vietnamese. But she has a friend for life. And they meet now every week to like keep each other accountable in their goals. Wow. I'm just like, how, how is this even possible? It's so cool. And a lot of other stories of, you know, people changing careers, having an insight from um, taking the course about their business, about their relationships, about their spirituality. I mean, it's like this pressure cooker of personal growth. PKM, you know, knowledge management is just, it's just like the excuse that we have to like show up there. But ultimately it's about connecting with people and connecting with ourselves, I really think. Yeah, and we'll get into that, but I want to kind of kick things off with you teaching for the first time. When was the first time you realized you were a teacher? It goes way back. It goes really, really far back. Um, I guess the earliest, I mean, I can think of examples as a kid. I come from a family of a lot of teachers, several English teachers, teachers of other, dis- of other subjects. My dad has taught in universities art. Um, I think it's kind of like this mindset. It's like this way of being, not just a profession. Uh, But the earliest kind of official place was tutoring uh, immigrants at the language learning center of my local community college. It's like, looking back, I think it was totally unpaid, unsupported, just a volunteer thing I did. But I think I had a real hunger to teach. Like, I needed to do it. They might have benefited, I hope. But it's like this thing inside of me that had to be expressed. It's a form of self-expression, just like any other art form. And so English is how I started. Where does that hunger come from? 
I don't know. Probably the same place that any art comes from, any storytelling, any any form of creative expression. Um, I think another another thing, another source might have been uh, going to Mexico as a kid. I think I started going when I was like less than 10, like eight, nine years old. We would go with church groups on mission trips. Uh, I lived in, I grew up in Orange County. We'd go south of the border, just an hour or two, usually to Tijuana, Mexicali area, and we'd build houses. So I was like eight, nine years old. The only thing I could do was carry the hammer or like get more nails. I would just like run around the construction site, like giving the workers, you know, supplies. Um, and we would do that every, you know, once or twice a year, all growing up into my teens. And I think what I took away from that is that just helping people was so fun. Mm. So just fun, exciting, meaningful, enlivening. And so it just became part of our family's life. I think that's something my parents taught me is helping people is not, oh, one day, once I've solved all my problems and I have all the resources and free time, which never happens, helping people is just an integral part of life now. Mm. It's just, it's like a habit. It's like a part of the fabric of your days. So what would you tell somebody who doesn't have that as part of the fabric of their days or doesn't feel like they've built the habit of helping? Yeah, I feel like, so helping people is a cheat code um, for yourself. Like, I think you have to actually do it selfishly. If you just are helping people because you think you should help people and because, you know, you're trying to like prove something or prove your worth or justify yourself, it's not as good for them or you. So like, I remember, you know, years later going to the Peace Corps, uh, which is this U.S. volunteer program sending Americans abroad. And when you're in the Peace Corps, everyone treats you like your mother Teresa. They like buy you drinks and, oh, you know, amazing that you did that and congratulations. Like you, you did this big sacrifice. I was like, listen, 2009, the midst of the biggest recession of my generation, no jobs. I got to get a secure government job, go to a really cool country, Ukraine, learn a new language, Russian, that is incredibly valuable for my future, learn resilience, learn how to um, to survive on my own, make incredible friends, learn a whole new culture. Like the benefits were so numerous. I was like, I'm in this for me. <laughs> and of course, I helped other people too, but I think you have to start with your own, with your, with yourself. Yeah. Well, you mentioned being in Ukraine, and I can't help but ask about the most recent events. We can watch that on on the news, but you were there. You you saw the country firsthand. So, how does that happening in the past few months impact your reality? It's been really tough. It's been really tough. Um, my town, which is called Kupiansk, is in the news. It's right on the front, right now, like the, where the front is in the in the Domba region, Donbas region. Um, many of my former students are fighting, um, or have been injured, or have fled, uh, left the country, or are in hiding, or have lost loved ones. Um, it is it is kind of surreal because it's such a peace loving country. You know, Ukraine has zero history of being, you know, like a, like a conquesting power. They've never attacked anyone. They've only been attacked throughout history. They're always the victims because they're at that crossroads of like Europe, Asia, and Eurasia, right? Uh, it's just incredibly sad and unnecessary 
And the victims, the biggest victims are the people who have the least responsibility for any of it. They're just, they're just at the wrong place at the wrong time. I don't know what to make of it, honestly. You know, I've donated money. That's like all I can think of to do. Helped a few kind of leave the country. That's like one of the few things we can do from a distance. Because uh, so many are fleeing to different places with zero resources. Uh, we raised money through my newsletter. We, we crowdfunded and then matched some, uh, some donations to different relief agencies. But uh, it is an incredible tragedy. Yeah. In, in lighter respect, it did make you a global citizen. And it did show you the power of, of the globe in a scale. And so what did going to Ukraine at that time teach you about the world at large? taught me so much. It was the best training program. Honestly, it's hard to even put into words. It's, we're just so comfortable here. We're so comfortable. It is just unfathomable. We're like within a bubble, within a bubble, within a bubble, within a bubble. We're like five layers deep to the point that we almost have no contact with physical reality. Like we're living in this like abstracted VR world uh, in a very real sense. Uh, and I remember being so uh, scared and confronted and in pain by something like a Ukrainian winter. Uh, the winter of 2000, I think it was 2009, 2000, or maybe 2010, was one of the coldest on record. And I'm from California. I thought, you know, visiting the east coast of the U.S., I thought I knew what a winter was. There are le levels of winter, right? Um, and I just, just having to survive that, like, it really almost puts you in a survivalist mindset because the cold, when it's 30 degrees below, is like a force. It's like a predator. It's like hunting you. You know, if you have like a gap in your clothing or you forget, oh my God, you forget, uh, like you lose a glove, you drop a glove. It's like a serious thing. And so I just became much more resilient far more resilient to the point that coming back to the U.S. and becoming an entrepreneur is so easy. People are like, oh, it's so hard to be an entrepreneur. I'm like, yeah, it is, but it's all psychological. It's yeah. all up here. Compared to Ukraine, being an entrepreneur is just like a walk in the park, honestly. Yeah. Were there any other experiences you sought out after to try to build mental toughness or build your mind up in a way? You know, I've never been one of these extreme people who like do Ironmans and like, I'm not that type. I think travel, living abroad is my way of doing that. Yeah. Of, um, and I don't like do it specifically to like create mental toughness. I do it to explore, to have fun, to um, get exposure to new ways of seeing the world, to learn skills, languages, cooking, how to do your laundry by hand, like practical, you know, life skills. <laughs> Um, but as a side effect of all, all that fun, it's basically fun, you also, um, I think most of all, learn to deal with uncertainty. That's the thing being abroad really teaches you. There's just a constant level of uncertainty, especially in the developing world. The other place I've spent a lot of time is in Brazil. You just never know what's going to happen. Every day you wake up and you're just like, wow, there could be a you know, a banda, a, a parade down my street that people just decided to like start a party and like, you know, bring out the instruments or, you know, the subway system could break down or there could be a, oh, a random weather event. You just are constantly up against the uncertainty. Whereas in the U.S., we've sort of like largely sort of locked down all that uncertainty. <laughs> yeah. So on that topic, David Perel 
had wanted me to ask you about dangerous neighborhoods creating tighter communities. And that's something I think you learned in Brazil. Yes. So. Yeah, it's funny he remembered that. This is one of my, I guess, one of my travel tips. <laughs> it's not very easy to take advantage of, but, um, you know, growing up in Orange County, it's kind of the extreme case. Even within the U.S., Orange County is like a resort. It's a bubble. It's a bubble within a bubble. It is so, it is so just... It's like living in a hotel. It's like living on the set of like a TV show, like the Stepford Wives, right? Um, and I just remember even from a young age feeling really alienated by that, really kind of dissociated. Like, is this it? Is this, we just drive our, you know, our nice cars down perfect streets with perfect lawns and go to perfect parks and, you know, all the families are perfect, everyone looks happy and it's just like too perfect. It really got to me somehow. I don't know why. <laughs> um, and so I started to seek, I think, danger as a way to, my, my parents now joke, they're like, oh, Tiago needs to feel alive. They kind of like give me a hard time. Um, but it's kind of true. And so I lived like the, the first time was living in the favelas of Rio de Janeiro in uh, Brazil. So I lived in Rio, but I didn't want to live in the in the wealthy parts. I wanted to live like up on the hillsides, and I did. I lived in two different uh, favelas, and had an incredible time. Like such vibrant, amazing life, like lifestyle you can have as a young person there. And then I went to the coast of Colombia, which still has some remnants of like narco trafficker violence. Like everywhere, stories of people being kidnapped and or killed or or ransomed. Like it's very present, even though most of that with the FARC is over. Uh, and then Eastern Ukraine, which wasn't a war zone at the time, has since become one. But I think um, living in these different kind of war zones or, you know, impoverished areas or places that are underdeveloped, I noticed people were way closer. People seem to just care more for each other or show that they cared more for each other. There seemed to be more joy, more serendipity, more aliveness, more excitement, more highs, also more lows. Life was just more exciting, more vibrant all around. And I loved that. I really loved... It's weird to, to say, oh yeah, you should move to a war zone. There's definitely enormous risks, and I had some close calls. But I think when you're young and single, you know, you don't have a family that you're responsible to, you can take risks, and you, you should take risks, some kind of risk. Um, when you're, you know, say in your 20s. How do you determine what the appropriate risk to take is? Yeah, great, great question. <laughs> Parents everywhere are like, I hate this guy. <laughs> I think you got to decide for yourself, you know. My parents were pretty, they're pretty open-minded, but they were pretty on edge a lot of the time. Um, and I can't say, you know, I'm proud of giving them sleepless nights. Um, but for me, I just did the calculus. There's no one I'm responsible to. I'm not married, don't have kids. I'm pretty, um, like, I'm pretty sort of prepared for these places. Like, I speak Portuguese fluently. I'm not walking into a favela, not speaking a word of Portuguese. I speak Spanish, so Colombia was also fine. In Ukraine, I didn't speak Russian at first, but I was learning it. And, of course, I had all the infrastructure and support of the Peace Corps, which was very strong. And so I... I sort of like took, I would say, calculated risks, like not just throw your, I didn't throw myself into situations that were dangerous on purpose, but I knew with a certain level of preparation, certain skills, 
certain considerations, I could make little forays, little like adventures, and then come back to safety. (laughs) How does the risk you take in your entrepreneurial life correlate to the risks you took in your traveling life? I think it's super related. It's super related, kind of like we were saying before. Um, I think risk tolerance is pretty, um, it's pretty built in. People tend to have a fair, not, not a fixed level of risk tolerance, but it's, it's so somatic. It's so biological. Like you can basically tolerate a level of risk up until the point that your body starts to physically like rebel. Panic attacks, anxiety, trouble breathing, sweating, heart palpitations, right? Um, and so I feel like I've sort of calibrated, like now that you say this, I've never thought about this, but I think I've done the same thing with entrepreneurship where it is risky in general, but each individual, say, project that I've done or product that I've created, I had some preparation, some special either considerations or circumstances or skills that made it less risky than it would seem on the surface. We can, we can talk about examples of that, but I, I had never considered before how closely related those are. Yeah, what are examples of that? Yeah, let's see. Um, like the cohort-based course, you know? It might seem out, outlandishly risky to, like, get up in front of a group of people. 2,000 sometimes. Yeah. I mean, these days, it's, <laughs> it's a whole other level. But in the beginning, it was, you know, 30. But even then, it's 30 professionals, 30 people that have high standards. I'm a young guy, like the least experienced professionally in the whole Zoom call, yeah. and I'm going to teach them how to be more productive and more effective, and I'm going to charge them, you know, 500 bucks, which was 10 times the kind of the, the standard price for courses, and I'm going to ask them to show up live with me on my schedule. It was kind of audacious, right? But I had a few things. I had my teaching experience. At this point, I had taught in California, Brazil, Colombia, and Ukraine. And if you've taught Ukrainian third graders, you can handle any audience, <laughs> right? Um, I had my experience in Silicon Valley, right? Like I had seen what um, high-end consultants and coaches and contractors charge. Once you've seen someone who is more or less as smart as you, more or less as experienced as you charge X, you start to go, oh, well, maybe I could do that, right? Um, a few other things like that, just kind of semi-unique life experiences that reduced the risk and made it something I was willing to try. I didn't know it was going to succeed, obviously, but um, it wasn't quite as risky as just um, doing all that without having the background. Yeah, so going back to the early days, before launching Building a Second Brain, Venkatesh Rao put in his newsletter, I think this guy, Tiago, is the next David Allen. Yes. What did that mean to you? It was huge. Huge, 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 huge. Yeah. Venkatesh is probably the person who's most influenced me. I've only met him in person once or twice very briefly. He's very shy. He's very introverted. Um, But he has this blog, Ribbon Farm, that is like... (laughs) How do I describe it? It's like the secret oracle of the internet. I think the ideas on that single blog will play out for decades influence the future direction of entire industries more than any other place that I know of on the internet or in the physical world. But it's not very easy to digest at all. You have to really spend time. You have to read a lot of words because he's not making it easy for you. He's not really interested in making it, you know, like snack food. 
he is venturing into these extremely esoteric, unknown frontiers, coming back and sharing something, but it's it takes work to digest. So my respect for him, it's funny, my respect for him meant that when he gave me that endorsement, which was so early, that was before the first cohort. I'm just like, how, how did he even know to, to do that? He was just making a prediction like years in advance. But when he said that, and he said it so strongly, he said it in public, without reservation, and he had blogged for David Allen. He had been part of the David Allen ecosystem, so he had that credibility. When he did that, it was like my faith in myself, like 10 x merely because I didn't want him to be wrong. <laughs> it's like, well, I don't want this person I respect to be mistaken, so I better now make his prophecy, like, like fulfill the prophecy so that I can continue to respect him. <laughs> Do you realize now that you're in that position that Venkatesh was yes. for you? Yes. And how does that feel and how do you use that power effectively? Yeah, gosh, I try. I really try to do it. Um, I try to do the same. I try to find people who are doing work that is more important and more meaningful than they realize or that their current sort of uh, like reputation or whatever um, justifies. Uh, and try to amplify them. I really do. Um, people who teach courses, it's really hard to get a course off the ground. I try to um, endorse those, blogs, YouTube channels. Um, I haven't found a way to, to make an endorsement that good as he did for me. I should maybe work on that. I usually tend to just be like, hey, you should pay attention to this person. He or she is doing amazing work. But it's, it's like the way you do it, the confidence and the framing matters, right? The fact that we were talking about this six years later, there's a reason. But in your in his example, it, was, it seemed like he, it was just a throwaway line, is how you described it. But it you saw it in a Whole Foods grocery store, and yeah. you stopped, and you were like, "Oh my God, this changes the perception of my reality." Because you didn't think of yourself as a David Allen or anything like that, and then that led you to seek out David Allen's editor and. And following his footsteps. Yes. That's what it was. I, I don't know where you found that, but that's exactly right. The Whole Foods parking lot. The, the place where, <laughs> where it all happened. I just stopped in my tracks because it was such an unreasonable thing for him to do. Um, and it, it fueled my motivation for years. For years. That one line. It's incredibly powerful. It's... It's an incredible thing that some people have the power to influence others and that can lead to incredible growth and innovation. Did you have you spoken with him since that occurred? Oh yeah, I talk to him all the time. Does he know that that impacted you at that uh, level? I've tried to tell him he doesn't take compliments very much, so he's always just like, "Okay, yeah, 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 yeah." And it's funny, this is part of what makes the his endorsements powerful is he's kind of a grump. He's not a promoter, like, you know, the club promoter, like, always has a new thing they're, like, trying to pitch you on. He doesn't endorse many things, and especially many people. He tends to be very kind of skeptical. He doesn't buy into new trends. In fact, he's, he's against new trends, generally. And so it's funny, because, like, when you're a skeptic and kind of grumpy, you have more credibility in a certain way. It's like you haven't spent your credibility. Yeah, the <laughs> scarcity of... Yes of his recommendations yes. lead it to be more valuable. Yes. So on the topic of 
of how you've built building a second brain. You had this great point when I was doing research for this about education versus entertainment and how it shouldn't be verse, how education and entertainment is one thing. And you said this in a different podcast. I stopped and I was like, oh my God, that changes the perception of my reality. Because in the last podcast that I recorded, I talked about education versus entertainment. (laughs) And I'm like, wow, it's not two separate things. So could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah, this is a this is a funny thing. It's um it's kind of a journey that I've been on because as a smart person, a self-described smart person, quote unquote, quote unquote, yes. It's it's you know, I come from a background where oh, I'm, you know, I'm not it's like I'm more sophisticated. I like more subtle complex ideas. I don't fall for the marketing tricks. This, there's this whole identity around, I mean, it's basically, I'm better than everyone, but the, which we all have a way that we're better than everyone, right? <laughs> so for the smart person, it is, I, I have more nuanced thinking, this, the sophistication of my ideas, the subtlety of my, you know, my theories, which is fine. That's all totally fine. And there, there's definitely worse identities to have, right? But I started in my own life to really run up against the limits of that, the, the limits of that self-identification. One big limit is you can't appreciate simple things. You know, pop culture is great. Like, what's wrong with a pop song that has a nice hook? Like, just enjoy it. Also enjoy, you know, the, the subtle jazz music, classical music, but the whole spectrum is, is good. It has value. And another blind spot is like, smart people love to first make this distinction. There's education and there's entertainment. I... I like education. I support education. You know, I am part of the educational establishment. And the implication is entertainment is shallow, it's bad, it's vulgar, it's for the masses. And these days I'm like, no, 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 no. Entertainment is the most important form of education because entertainment makes you care. That is fundamentally what entertainment is for. It makes you care about something or someone. Once you care, you can find all the educational resources you want. But if you don't care, all those resources are no good to you. You might as well not even have them. So I see my job these days. I, I am an entertainer. I am a dancing monkey. I will be here on video dancing the PKM second brain show until the cows come home. Because once someone just knows that that thing exists and they care about it and they see, like there's this, this moment where they go, that is for me. I can be part of that that fits with my reality, that is my job, to light that spark. And once the spark is lit, I can say, there's this subreddit and that YouTube channel and this blog, my own and others, doesn't have to be mine. I'm just trying to introduce people to this world, make them care. The ability to spark that, of like, I'm on this person's team now. I remember distinctly when Gary Vaynerchuk, I was 13 years old, I wanted to go to his book signing, I tweeted at him and said, hey, Gary, it's a school night. I can't go. He responds, what's your mom's number? Calls her on the spot, what? leaves a voicemail for her. I end up going to the book signing. No way. I became on Gary Vaynerchuk's team forever because of oh that. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and it just goes to show you can create a moment for somebody. You can help somebody in that way. So other than tweeting at somebody and getting someone to call your mom, how do you create that spark 
for more people? That's what I'm trying to figure out actively. It's not natural to me, you know? Um, yeah, how do you be entertaining? How do you decide to be entertaining? It's like kind of, a, it's harder to, to intentionally become entertaining than it is to become educated. It's another reason entertainment is valuable. It's actually difficult to acquire as a skill. Uh, writing the book was part of that. Like, how do I make this something that each sentence increases their desire to read the next sentence? Maybe it's not education versus entertainment, or maybe it's not education and entertainment. Maybe it's education and entertainment and love. Because what Gary Vaynerchuk did in that moment and what you feel in someone's presence when you're with them sometimes is love and like the connection. And it's really that that gets you to learn from somebody or appreciate somebody. It's not necessarily being a dancing monkey for somebody. It's getting them to feel your love or your presence. I think so. It's personal. Like education, usually we, we begin to care about something because of a specific person. A parent, a teacher, someone in that class, someone who finally explained it in a way that you understood. Much more so than how factual or thorough or comprehensive the material is, right? It's so personal. And I think that's why this era of, you know, being able to have one person like me reach so many through all these digital channels is powerful. Is like, in the past, a great teacher can only reach a handful of people. They're fundamentally limited. Now there's no limit. Now, you know, when we were remodeling our, our uh, garage into a home studio last year, our driving question was, how do we design a classroom that can teach the entire world? And that led us to such different, like, you know, you think, oh, make a classroom. Okay, whiteboard, chairs, all these things. Make a classroom that can teach the entire world. Suddenly, you have to think about the, which microphone you're going to use. Is it directional? What fidelity? What bit rate? Oh, but it's no use having a good microphone unless you have soundproofing. What kinds of soundproofing? Can the soundproofing double as insulation? Oh, but if there's insulation, it's going to get hot in the summer. Increase the size of the AC unit. You start to solve all these multidimensional problems, which you never, I never thought I would get into those things. But the ultimate intent is to be a teacher to someone who doesn't have that teacher in their life. Which actually no one does. No one has a PKM teacher. It's not even an option. <laughs> what inspires you to dream that big? Oh gosh. Um, first, because it's fun. I really think this is, this is the main reason for ambition. It's basically, why not? Yes. Like, why not? The time is going to pass anyway. Your, li your life, your survival, like we were saying, is never at risk. As long as you have a couch at your parents' house or a friend's house you can sleep on, you're going to be fine. Why not? Just there's, not, there's really nothing to lose and so much to gain by just dreaming bigger. Um, and then there's other reasons, you know. Uh, that's the selfish reason, so I like to lead with that, but I really think that this, these ideas can, can and will and are changing people's lives. I know they are. It's a complete paradigm shift in relation to how to thrive in the digital age that no one is teaching, no one even knows can be taught or learned. Um, you know, I'm teaching specific organizational techniques, but usually when people are reading the book or taking the course, there's this light bulb moment where they go, it's like they abstract away all the little details of the productivity techniques and they realize, oh, this is basically transhumanism. This is one of the early steps towards transhumanism, the fusion of man and machine 
into superhuman beings is really what this is about. Well, that's where we're going. We're going, and it's like you're helping make that process a little bit closer. Yeah. It's a, I'm providing a bridge. It's like this, the first little baby step. We still have to learn stuff and, and do stuff. In the future, it'll just be like a microchip implanted in your brain, right? For now, we have to you know, use digital notes apps. <laughs> what, where on the adoption curve would you be for adopting Neuralink? Or an, a device like that? The last one. The last oh one. Oh my gosh. I'm, I really tend to be a late adopter for everything. I don't want to early adopt things in general. Very few exceptions. Um, I think this comes from my, my dad is a painter. And it's funny, he always says, you know, I only use 16th century technology. <laughs> he's like, yes, super Lindy. You know, he's using canvas and paint and acrylic and vellum, these old, uh, these old materials that, you know, artists in the Renaissance used. And he was like, yeah, if it worked for Leonardo da Vinci, who am I to say, no, that's, that's not good enough. <laughs> um, and it's so clear. It's funny, with, with a painting, it's so clear that the materials are not the constraint. Obviously, no one would say, oh, this painting was almost great, but you used acrylic instead of oil. Like, no, all the constraints are in the imagination and in the artistry of the, of the person. With technology, I think the same is true, but it's much easier to deceive ourselves. We can say, oh, no, the constraint is in the software. The constraint is in the design of the social network or the algorithm. It's not true, but those things are so powerful and sophisticated and fancy that it's like tempting to like, like the classic is just, oh, I have this great story to tell, this art that I want to create, but I have to find the right app. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> yeah. you, you brought up your dad and you did something very fascinating, which is you made a film about him, documentary. What inspired that decision? How did that transform your relationship with your father? Oh man, it was, it was so, one of the most meaningful projects I've done really really meaningful i really encourage everyone watching this to try it it was com done completely or filmed completely on my iphone that was a constraint <clears throat> i said i could get a fancy camera but the minute i have a fancy camera it's going to just metastasize in complexity um i just followed my dad around for a year um when we were talking on the couch when we, we did a few trips, which is a good kind of scenario because things happen on trips. It's, it's like provides the excitement and the, you know, the, the, Attention. the, the narrative, yes. Um, interviewed him a few times, interviewed my mom, my siblings, his friends that we happened to see, uh, and then edited, did, did the editing myself on my computer using, uh, I think I used Adobe Premiere to learn just the basics. And not only was it so fun and interesting, like, my big concern at the time was I'm not going to be present. I'm going to be, do you know, documenting instead of living. I found exactly the opposite. I was like 10 times more present. I had deeper conversations on camera than I've ever had with my father. I almost thought, I, like, this would have been worth it if I faked the whole thing. If I just said, I'm filming and then not hit the button, I still would have done it. <laughs> Because there's something fun. Oh, this is another surprise. I thought, oh, when I have cameras and mics, people will be less vulnerable. The opposite. I'm sure you find the same. It's like people need a reason, a justification to open up, right? And so, like, if I ask my dad, you know, what was it like growing up, you know, as an Asian man in California in the 50s? He would be like, oh, you know, whatever. I survived. Like the, the flippant answer that you give when you're just 
living with someone all the time. But on camera, suddenly he's like, oh, well, I have to, I have to give a real answer that, you know, people are going to hear this. There could be someone that, you know, that is helped by this. And he tells me more detail, more of that history than ever. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, that is all so meaningful. And as this super amazing bonus, just as an extra credit, I have this artifact, this video file on my computer and on YouTube that I, I, it is the only piece of media I can imagine my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren watching, really. I think all the photos will pretty much be gone, but hopefully YouTube will still be around. <laughs> you know, it's funny. There was a video, a home video that I put on YouTube of my brother and my cousin and my family still references that video. I did it 10 years ago. Yes. And it's because something about having it in the collective consciousness yes. allows it to prosper in our minds and be pulled up more frequently. Yes. So on, on creating a documentary with your father, what tips would you give on questions to ask? How do you go about interviewing one of your close family members? Yeah, I had to look up some resources on this. There's actually some good blog posts. Um, this is kind of a thing that's emerging, I think. People wanting to document their parents' stories. Um, let me think if there was anything that stood out. I mean, with, with your parents specifically, the hardest thing is to come at it with a beginner's mind. You really think you know your parents. You think you know everything about them. You've heard every story a hundred times, and you don't. You really, really don't. Like, as a parent, a new parent now, it's kind of amazing to me. It's like, now I see, oh, m you know, my life didn't start with this kid being born. But thinking to my parents, it kind of feels that way. Like, oh, they, pr they didn't have much of a life before me. Like, things started when I arrived. But no, they had an entire life, half of a lifetime before I arrived. And I know so little about it still. It's really worth digging into because that shapes who you are so much. Like, oh my gosh, studying your parents' early years is probably just as informative to your own self-understanding as your own early years because things just get passed straight down. You said in a tweet that you were watching your son look at trucks or something and it was, it was in that moment you realized, oh, a lot of this is pre-programmed. Why do you make that? tweet or assumption I mean I just see his his natural affinities he's so opinionated he either loves something he just he has this thing where he bursts into laughter when he likes something you know the cat this morning was like flicking his ear and he just like bursts into just joyous laughter he either loves something or he hates it and just like sees that thing and just screams because he just doesn't want anything to do with it. So everything is like to an extreme in ways that I can't explain from his upbringing, in ways that feel genetically programmed, things that remind me of when I was a kid, like uncanny, you know, ways that he, um, that he eats food or ways that he reacts when he sees a train or the ways that he, um, that he sleeps. I, I just, it, it's, it's recalibrated my, like the nature nurture I used to think things were mostly nurture. These days I'm like, I think it's mostly nature. <laughs> uh, how much does, you know, sometimes people say you go to a different country and what you actually learn about is yourself. I think that came up in my conversation with David Perel. How much does raising a child teach you about yourself? You think it's going to be about you teaching the child, but in, in fact it's about the child teaching you something. Oh my gosh, so much. Gosh. 
it's he's the best teacher he's the best teacher because he's so unyielding you can't negotiate you can't reason you can't bargain he's just an extremely uh ruthless negotiator <laughs> <laughs> what does that mean exactly it's like if you, it's like i was saying if he wants something he wants it now and he doesn't want anything else and you can't say like just a simple example preparing food this morning I was preparing, you know, yogurt and bananas. He doesn't understand or care that I need a couple minutes to prepare his yogurt and bananas. He's angry. I am keeping him from his yogurt and bananas. And it's easy to be like be kind of mad like, you know, why isn't be patient or something. But like we're that way, right? I can I can recognize that in myself that when I want something, I don't care about the details. I just want it. And actually, I kind of want to get more in touch with that like as an adult it's valuable to like be in touch with what you want and to go for it we tend to be like oh no i need to do a and b and c and the checklist and oh but i can't have it for this reason but like he's teaching me how to go after what i want in life because that's what he does every minute of the day <laughs> <laughs> yeah so often we have society's conditioning of you shouldn't want this or this isn't for you that's all these stories narratives circumstances considerations this cloud of ideas that does isn't necessary yeah i want to talk about you broke down on a plane crying once where you realized in one moment i think you were reading how to change your mind by michael pollan yeah and you realized you wanted to be the bridge between the united states and brazil mm -hmm. what was that realization like and what was you crying about or tears in your eyes? Like, take us to that moment. Gosh, yeah, that's from a blog post um, from a while back. So that moment in particular was, gosh, there were a few things happening at that time. Um, that book, How to Change Your Mind, is about psychedelics. And I, I have a theory that you can get like a contact high from just reading about psychedelics. Like even just hearing about it, I felt I was on the plane, like very like, whoa, like I'm almost having visuals, like, and my reality feels very like in flux, very open. Um, but I think what that openness, that feeling, that psychedelic like feeling was opening me to was a very old desire. Mm -hmm. Speaking of desire, I can remember as a young kid, we would go back and forth between the US and Brazil every year. So I feel, in a sense, that I grew up in two places, almost like there's like, like a split reality. The streets of Sao Paulo, Brazil, it's big, kind of crowded, urban center in Brazil, and then the suburbs of Orange County, California. Um, and I remember, oh gosh, I remember feeling like, you guys need to like share things. You know, I'd be like, okay, like in the, the naive way that a kid does, I'm like, <laughs> it's funny, comment my parents always bring up they're like you would like when we would go to brazil i'd be like um i'd be like why aren't this the streets straight this curb don't they know how to just make it straight because it'd be like cracked and stuff you know they just need to be informed that you can how to make a straight street right um but then also vice versa i didn't have that oh american superiority thing that both americans and brazils tend and brazilians tend to have um, like Brazil, for example, had this this uh, kids show called Jaspion, which was imported from Japan, 
and it was Power Rangers, years before Power Rangers arrived in the U.S., because Brazil would just, they wouldn't try to make their own shows, they would bring it in from Japan and do uh, dubbing. And so I would be watching Jaspion and be like, this is the coolest thing ever, and then go back to California, and, and Power Rangers wasn't a thing, and I'd be like, you guys have to watch this, it's so cool, they have these suits, and they like transform into things, and, and my friends were just like, what do you mean, like that, I, I can't understand, and so I was like, these, these cultures need to cross-pollinate and share, I just, I just came to that conclusion as a kid, but then there was, it was totally unclear how to do that, I once had this idea when I was really young of having a business where I would get trends from the U.S., or Brazil and take them to the other and like sell them. I was like, I'll be this like person who like, you know, gets, you know, pogs or something that is going big in in the US and bring them to Brazil. That of course went nowhere. Uh, And then in college, I started studying diplomacy. My first major was international development, international, yeah, international relations. Um, And I thought I'll be a diplomat. I did one year of that, realized you can't just be a diplomat. You have to like be super well connected politically. More likely, you'll be some like very small like bureaucrat, maybe in the foreign service in some random country. So I left that. But years later, I, in fact, now I just published a blog post like a month ago called "The Case for Brazilian Online Education." I'm still discovering new ways that I can do that old, old kind of dream, uh, which is through education. Uh, Brazil has the most thriving online education market possibly in the world in many ways more thriving than the u.s because they depend on it more and i i'm seeing that i could get ideas that have worked in the u.s bring them to brazil and also vice versa which is just like feels i don't know if this is destiny i don't know if i subconsciously went to direction to make this happen but i find this is true of people like this is kind of an experiment the things you're into now, see how far back you can trace them. I bet they often go back to when you were very young, which also means the first hints of what you will be doing in 5, 10, 20 years are probably with you now. Chills. Right? Yeah. If you can just look at the little, the little hints, the little clues, you can predict your future, I think. Yeah. It's remarkable when you really step back and look at the journey and you see the dots connect and you're like, how did that connect to that? When that is really in touch with your feelings and emotions of like being able to be on that plane, break down in tears and like to feel all the ways in which you, that could transform you. But I also listened to you and describe, you described a, a period of time when you weren't in touch with your feelings, which is so remarkable talking to you because it, it seems like you're very in touch with your intuition and, and how you, what you're doing and your sensations and how that's going to impact reality. So what contributed to that growth? Yeah, that's been a, another big journey for me over the past like decade (laughs) Um, I think it goes back to the pitfalls of smart people like I just self-identified as an as an intellectual person so young that was what I was good at that was what I excelled in that's where I got respect and validation and approval that's what I got paid for when I started working that's what people knew me for complimented me on it's it's so hard to escape that reality bubble because everyone and everything around you is constantly reinforcing that. Mm. 
or whatever it is for you. Maybe it's being charming or good looking or funny or clever or athletic or talented or musical. There's something that it's like you keep going, you keep doubling down on that thing, right? We all have something. Um, but I think I just started reaching the limits where I realized being smart does nothing for my relationships, for example. In fact, limits them. You know, I would try to give advice. I now know that giving advice, especially unsolicited advice, is like if you want to just kill <laughs> a conversation and like alienate the person, just give them some advice. It's just the worst, right? Um, or like trying to analyze. Like I'd re read all these books about relationships, like game theory or like how to talk to people or how to be extroverted. The more advice that I consumed, the worse at those things I became because it was all up here. It was all trying to like solve a, a logical puzzle and people aren't logical puzzles. They want to be, they want you to be with them and interact with them and to feel what they're feeling, not be analyzed like a, like a machine. Um, and I, it, it was a lot of work. It was a lot of things, a lot of programs I've done, courses I've taken, meditation retreats, uh, learning to cry was like a skill. It's like one of my most important skills. I had to learn to cry because society had made crying akin to like an existential threat as a man, right? Um, we can get into some, what some of those, like I, I really love talking about this because I, I think I went about it maybe in a more systematic way, just breaking down my belief system than, than perhaps is typical. Um, but I, I love recommending those things. I can almost like, I have like a buffet. I have like my magical kit and I'm like, okay, so what is your issue? What is your problem? Let me find a program or a meditation technique or a, a psychedelic substance or something and I can just mix up a little potion and give it to <laughs> Yeah, so I was talking to my grandma uh, yesterday and she's very intuitive and she's very able to feel and she she can cry deeply about the littlest thing I can mention on the podcast and she'll start crying and she, and I said what is that grandma and she said my vagus nerve you know it just open whoa and and I was like grandma you know I was just I was just listening to Tiago Forte for researching him and he was saying how his vagus nerve was blocked I'd never heard of a vagus nerve and he said while I was researching once you hear about it you won't stop hearing about it yes. so I mean how crazy is that that was a little synchronicity that I was talking about before it's amazing how does she know about that I have no idea but an open vagus nerve means you can feel more deeply is that yes so like how do you go about opening up that vagus nerve and feeling more deeply because I think that's at the root of of what I'm feeling in this moment a deep understanding from you and and it's such a beautiful thing to have that connection and I I just want more people to experience that as well me too me too yeah the vagus nerve oh my gosh it's a whole subject that I've never heard anywhere except like a couple very obscure books one kind of healing practitioner and one Facebook group that I'm a part of, which is funny. There's always a Facebook group. <laughs> For everything. For everything. Yeah, it's, it's, so, it's so unlikely, but there is this nerve. It's, I believe, the largest nerve in the body that runs from your gut, like deep in your, I think like diaphragm, straight up past your heart, up your neck to your brain. It's almost like the superhighway. It's like the neural superhighway of your body. And... It controls a lot of things, 
most importantly for this discussion, your fight or flight response, which is so so core to everything, right? Every time you shut down or you um, you're afraid or you you know you just close down. You're not your full like don't have your full aliveness. It's because your fight or flight mode is being activated. And that, that is a bio, you know, I think we forget that is a biological phenomenon. It's not just concepts interacting with concepts. Something is happening in the body. Like physically, there are like juices and like hormones and neuro, neuro stuff that is happening. Um, and so there's this whole emerging field of how do you understand the vagus nerve, stimulate the vagus nerve, calm the vagus nerve, which you can do directly. There's devices you can buy that just wake it up kind of. And I have this long-standing pain and tension in my neck that has been actually the driving force in this, this decade-long journey. I've described, I wish I could say, no, I'm just, I'm so motivated and like ambitious that I just set out on this path. No, it was like being woken up every day, feeling like there's a vice around my neck. And it's like, you will grow. You will, you know, learn to understand yourself or this pain will just keep getting worse. It was like having a gun to my head is what it felt like many mornings. And I had to, I just had no choice. So I'll stop there, but it's a whole world what of the vagus do? nerve. So what do you do to, to uncover a, a more, uh, to uncover your vagus nerve? <laughs> it's really- So many things. And it's still, it's not fixed, it's not done. The pain is still there, which is, is so part of this was understanding, we'll save that for later, but chronic conditions in general. There's some lessons for any chronic condition that you have. And I've discovered that almost everyone has something, a bad knee, a weird recurring infection, a, even, even like anxiety. Something is happening in the body that is telling us there's something here to pay attention to. Um, so the lessons here kind of apply broadly. But so many things like from, you know, discovering meditation. Meditation was one of the earliest ones. Meditation, I kind of think of, it's like the, it's like the inter introductory class that you have to take in college before all the other classes. It's just like, it's just so basic because you have to be able to know what is happening inside without reacting to it. If you don't have that capability, it's like reading or writing. You can't do anything else without reading or writing. Um, so meditation was like the first, one of the first bricks in the, the edifice, right? Uh, and that was through reading a book, uh, actually, which I recommend called Mindfulness, uh, which you can find on Amazon, which had none of the spirituality, none of the religion, which I didn't like because I had grown up religious and kind of walked away from it. So it's like teaching meditation as if it's like an engineering skill, just like straight up the practices, right? Uh, and then also discovering Vipassana. So this was another thing, is reading books is fine, but it's not enough. It's never enough. For those same reasons we were talking about, it's, not co it's fundamentally not cognitive. It's not logical, this process. It is somatic. And so like reading the book was a fine introduction, but I needed to go to the retreat. I needed to go to, I've been twice to the 10-day retreats where you meditate 10, 11 hours per day for nine or 10 days and just find out for yourself what all these writers are talking about, right? <laughs> uh, and then there's, I mean, other programs, coaching programs like the Landmark Forum was huge for me. It's a three-day seminar taught all over the world. Hiring different coaches, working with different sort of healing practitioners from Reiki 
to very skilled massage therapists, to acupuncturists, to acupuncturists, to um, business coaches, to executive coaches, to psychedelics, LSD, critical, to even just going places, Burning Man, traveling, um, being in a serious relationship that led to marriage. Like I consider all this as like my boot camp, my personal growth boot camp. These were all the like stages and the different, not ob- they're not obstacles, but they were like steps that I went down the path, you know? Yeah, for the Vipassana retreat, what tips would you give somebody to have a most effective 10 days? Stay. <laughs> Stay in it. So many people leave. There's like a, th- at least when I went, like a one-third dropout rate. People cannot be alone with themselves. What does that tell you uh, about people, about one-third of people? A lot, doesn't it? That sitting in a room alone is unbearable. Un- it's intolerable. I can't stand it. I have to leave. I don't know. What do you, what do you think it tells us? <laughs> It tells me that there are a lot of forces that have been thinking for those people and it's become more comfortable to have other people think for you than to think for yourself. I always tell people, turn off the podcast, listen to yourself for an hour instead and see what happens because you'll probably learn more from yourself than you will from me or you. Yeah, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't say it better myself. I think it's, it's very scary to see how we can't do that. Um, and also that the, I think another takeaway for me was we blame the world for distractions. The world is doing this to me. It is forcing me to have this smartphone and forcing me to listen to, you know, ads on these different channels and the noise and the distractions and, you know, the people trying, sending me messages. But like, once you sit in a room for, for 10 days and realize your mind produces more distractions and interruptions than any external source ever could. It's very confronting, first of all, because you have to take responsibility. You have to take responsibility. No one is doing this to me. No one. It is me doing it to myself. But if you move through that, that feeling of being confronted, you can take responsibility and decide all sorts of things, all all sorts of changes to make in your life um, to take that into account. What were some of the most impactful decisions you made after going to those retreats? Mm. I mean, I think maybe the most impactful was continuing to meditate. It's been a core... I think the first retreat I went on was in 2014. And probably two-thirds of all the days in the eight years since then, I've meditated. It is like brushing my teeth. It's like... It's not, even, it's not even like I want to do it. It's just I do it. I do it because my life, the quality of my life degrades rapidly and, and uh, unmistakably within a few days of me not meditating. Yeah. It is a survive, it's a matter of survival because my brain is so anxiety prone. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's hilarious or it's so interesting that you're, you describe your own brain as so anxiety prone because... When I was doing research for this and listening to you on other podcasts, I said to myself, this guy is one of the most calm, <laughs> calm guys that I've ever heard. And there's a sense of presence that I get from him. And it's like I almost knew you had spent a decade plus meditating. 
Uh, and it's just so funny how the perception or the tweets you put out was so different for me versus the way you <laughs> communicate because maybe like you're engaged, you're trying to get engagement or like yes. you're hating on certain things. Yeah. And I'm like, this guy is just loving and full of presence. Yeah. What I heard, that's what I heard. And that's not what I was reading sometimes on the tweets, which was just funny for me. Yeah. Yeah. Twitter. I have a Twitter persona um, that is very spicy. <laughs> it is. <laughs> why, why is that? Oh, gosh. Why is that? I think it's partly learning from Venkatesh. I very much emulated uh, his Twitter style, which is very sarcastic, very dry, very kind of grumpy, like I was saying. <laughs> Um, he was the one that introduced me to Twitter. I joined Twitter to follow him. Uh, so that's part of it. But also, there's a few other things. One is, it does well on social media. Like, social media, people are always like, oh, you know, like, people want to bring their whole self to social media. That's not really what it's for. Each platform, what you want to do is get one aspect of your personality and sort of amplify it and then channel that, just one side of who you are through that. Because then it's, I don't know why, why it's that way, but it just works better. Um, people know what to expect from you. They know what you're there for. They know uh, what's coming when they see that you've shared something. Um, and it's true. Like in my day-to-day life, I'm very silly. I'm very kind of naive in a lot of ways. I'm very open-minded, very calm. But on Twitter, I'm the opposite of all those things. And it's kind of cool. I get to express that. You know, there's not many places in life I get to be just brutally honest and just dry and just like, just land these zingers on people. Like you can't really get away with that with like your family, right? Yeah. <laughs> but no, on Twitter, I can. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was funny. Your wife saying, after reading your tweets, I don't trust any thought leaders. I don't. <laughs> like that's a that's a funny way to put it. Of like people can represent different parts of themselves yes. on a platform and what you take on the internet doesn't necessarily mean that's who you are. And so I have some tweets that I'd love to talk to you about. Oh, no. No, they're good. I I like them. Um, This one is is just based on something we were just talking about, which is to have profound insights, you need a quiet mind. What does that mean exactly? Did I say that? Yes. Oh, wow. We have my team tweeting on my behalf. (laughs) So sometimes I'm like, "Uh, I think that was someone else. Um, I mean, I think that's meditation. Yeah. Time alone, time in nature, time not consuming content, not being productive, not solving problems, not being smart. Um, the insights have to arise. You can't just like produce an insight on demand. It has to, it's almost like it happens to you. And if there's not a moment of your day that you're not consuming content and like getting more advice or whatever, the insights just never have the opportunity to to rise is that true because i'll listen to a podcast and i'll be like wow that that reminds me of that yes so what's the difference there i think there's probably external things and internal ones it's like the external thing can the external insight can come and maybe it lands but then it's like something from you has to kind of rise up to meet it or some interpretation, some, like you said, it, it reminded you of something or resonated with you. I think you need both halves of the equation. Sometimes people are so, col- like in a collecting mindset, they've saved a hundred productivity tips. Well, have you tried any? Or have you thought about 
which ones actually resonate, which ones call to you, which ones, which ones pique your curiosity. No, 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 no. Just collecting, 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 collecting. I don't know. I think it's just the, the balance between taking in information from the outside and reflecting, refining, deciding what it means to you. Yeah. It's like, I'm sure you get that a lot with building a second brain is people so excited to do the productivity part, the capture, but it's the applying. How do we get better at applying what we capture? Yeah, I think, you know, it's funny. People go through a capturing phase that I almost think might be necessary. I don't think it's, I don't see it as bad. You know, it's kind of like, I don't know, the first time you, I don't know, get a job and you have your own income and you kind of go a little crazy, you buy some stuff you maybe don't need. Or when you, I don't know, like when we've had scarcity and then we suddenly learn how to acquire something, sometimes we acquire too much. Um, and in the world of information, especially where everything's free or most things are free, and we ha- you discover these capture tools. Oh, I can just take a snapshot. I can write down a note. I can use Readwise, all these things. I think you need to go through that, but then on the other end, you realize that very little of what you're capturing is necessary. Even less of it is truly impactful. And that what actually makes a difference, what actually starts to shift your life is applying it. Um, which I kind of think every person needs to just, I can say that a hundred times, I've said it a thousand times, until, until you just like look at your, I don't know, Evernote inbox full of 300 web clips that you collected. I think only in that moment does it sink in that collecting and collecting for its own sake is not really useful. Yeah, that makes sense. So he, here's another tweet for you. Don't trust anyone over 35 <laughs> giving advice. life advice if they don't have kids. <laughs> I got in trouble for that one. I got in trouble for that one. Yeah. What was the thinking behind that? You know what it was? Uh, so we had kids about a year and a half ago, our first kid. And we had been living until recently in San Francisco. And my wife and I had always lived in big cities, you know, L.A., Mexico City, others and we were having a kid and I thought I wonder how many people are parents you know like like what's what would you guess of all adults in the world in the whole world how many are parents have been parents or will eventually become parents what percentage would you guess I would guess a high percentage I would guess like 60 percent right makes sense probably in a city that is probably accurate we know lots of people even married people couples who don't have kids but really, there's different estimates, but it's at least 90%. It's at least 90%. In the world, outside of big urban cities, virtually everyone is a parent. And if you're not, it's, you're, you're strange. It's a weird aberration, right? So I saw that, and I was very surprised. And it made me realize, whoa, I think of parents as like a niche. Like, oh, like parenting blogs or parenting content. No, where's the niche? Parenting is, is everyone. We're single people, childless people. We're this weird aberration, this weird phase in our life that we have like so few responsibilities. I'm, it's, it's like that funny, I'm the minority. I'm the different one. And so that really had me like obviously embrace parenting, but also it, it changed the advice that I give and how I teach and how I think in a way that made my ideas much more palatable much more accessible to much more people like it actually having a kid was the best business 
decision or business outcome because as long as my advice was rooted in being childless, spending all my time, my weekends, my evenings, all the time in the world on productivity, obviously what I'm going to come up with doesn't work for someone who doesn't have unlimited amounts of free time. So my advice started to become much more realistic, much more practical, much more grounded in everyday realities of taking the kids to school or making them food or trying to do your work during COVID while also homeschooling a kid. And so paradoxically, having a kid led to the business growing dramatically, led to the book being more relatable, led to my interviews being more relatable. It's like, who would have thought? (laughs) Yeah, you had it as a category in your head of these are parents, but you realize zooming out that the category is everyone. And so what type of role do you think that having access to large data sets does to the human psyche? Because we never in the past could know 90% of people. You could just look around and be like, oh yeah, everyone's got a kid. But we have access now to more information than ever before. What does that do to our minds and how we make decisions? Gosh, such a good question. I think we're, we're barely beginning to understand this. Barely beginning to understand it. I think it does a lot of things. It's, there's a parallel here to biology where I think David Perel has written about this, how all of our biological systems are oriented towards scarcity, towards not enough calories, not enough sugar, uh, having to exercise and move our bodies constantly. And so now the, the, the world of physical abundance, food, convenience, not having to move barely is killing us. The same thing is happening with information. All of our psychological processes are geared towards a world that has like so little information, so little, so little data, right? Everything from, you know, everything from how we make decisions, all our biases, make a list of all our cognitive biases, they actually make sense in a world of information scarcity, right? Like like having your, your beliefs influenced by your neighbor in a world of information scarcity is an excellent strategy. But then we take all this to a world of information abundance and they not only don't help, they hurt us. So now you see the conspiracy theories and misinformation and the this filter bubbles and all these different things. And so it's up to us, and this is a lot of what building a second brain is about, is reintroducing constraints, reintroducing structures, reintroducing an environment that buffers us against that. I think of it like an information storm. It's like. Being on the internet is like being in the forest in the middle of a snowstorm naked, really. Every like piece of snow and wind and water and dirt is like the posting on social media. It's just hitting you, no protection. You have no, no shelter. Whereas the second brain is almost this like, it's like a little, like a little shelter where things hit the second brain. And then if you want, you can reach out and take it and take it into your, your first brain, but you don't have to. You sort of have this like filter. You have this, this um, buffer between you and the information storm. Yeah, and on that topic, I think we're so biased to recent events. What's happening in the next few days, what happened in the last few. But building a second brain allows you to have bias towards things that help you. Yes. Three years in the past, oh, I went to Naples. Okay, let me pull up Naples in my file and now it's recent. Yes. So that, that's really helpful. That, totally. That's one huge bias that actually the internet might even double down on because we have like neomania, the obsession with the new. Yes. 
Everything is new, 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 new. Like we're looking at one social media update. Oh, let me put that aside because there's, you know, that from 15 seconds ago because there's one from five seconds ago. Um, and it's, it's just wild. Even when we say do a brainstorm, like let's all get in a room and do a brainstorm, which is like a pretty good way of coming up with ideas. Even in that case, even with super smart people, you're all drawing on what you have access to right now. Yeah. Of all human history, you are limiting yourself to one hour. Um, and often when people work with me, either on our team or externally, they'll, they'll sometimes notice this. Like, let's say I'm sharing my screen and I'm in Evernote. I will get an idea from last week and then a note from three years ago and then a note from nine years ago. Combine those into a new thing. And they're just like, wait a minute. Like, what did you just do? But to me, like, why, why not? It's Lindy. Why should a idea from last week be more important or valuable than one from, if anything, the one from nine years ago is more valuable. <laughs> yeah. Could you explain Lindy for people? Because we mentioned it twice sure. who, who don't know. True. It's this idea that the longer something has been around, the longer it probably will be around. It's basically putting importance on things that have stood the test of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's beautifully said. Okay. So back to the tweets. This is so funny. I don't think we've ever done this format. Yeah. Please explain yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Most people starting out are worried about quality when they should f- focus on quantity. Publish something every week for a year and then you'll start you'll just start having insight into what what you should be creating in what form, how and why. What's that about? Yeah, this is a big one. It's a big one. Um the example that comes to mind is from my dad, where he would constantly be switching between quality and quantity. So one example, one day I came home from school, uh, I think I was in either middle, no, I think I was in high school, and we go, I go into the backyard, and on every, the, the, whole, the whole side of my dad's studio, he has a big studio in the backyard that used to be a, like a, an extra garage for a guy who had a tractor. He converted the tractor garage into a studio. So we have this giant wall. The whole wall was covered with paintings of crabs. Crabs. Crab, 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 crab. I'm just like, wow, I didn't know the demand for crab artwork (laughs) was so large. And this is what happened, is he was painting a different painting, a still life. He does different genres, but still life are kind of like the best sellers. It's like the most commercially successful. Uh, it's like an arrangement. A still life is just like a fruit and then like a statue and then like various, you know, physical objects arranged like on a table. <clears throat> and he was painting and everything was fine. And then he, he had a, like a dead crab, like the shell of a crab in the corner. And he realized, I don't know how to, to paint a crab, which is a quality problem. What he's really saying is, I don't know how to paint a crab well. I don't know how to to make the movements with my paintbrush where someone looks at this and is pleased by the sight of a crab. Okay, so what does he do? I think many artists, most artists, would stop, get frustrated, get anxious, keep trying to do it and fail and then mess up. Then they would leave, go do something else, maybe come back to it. Those things can work, but he took a quantity approach. He said, what is missing is simply the skill of painting crabs. So let me go and just do quantity. Paint crab, 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 crab at different sizes. Little tiny crabs and big crabs. Crabs from the like the top-down view or the bottom-up view. Crabs turn on their side. Crabs in black and white. Crabs in full color. Every variation of crabs. He's basically, the way he thinks of it is, he's training not just his mind but his arm. He's training his muscle memory how to paint a crab. 
So what happens? Once he's mastered the art of crab painting, he goes back to the original still life, and now he does it. He switched back from quantity to quality. He discovered through quantity what quality even means and how to produce it, and then went back and did the best crab he's ever done in the corner of that painting. And by the way, one more thing on this, all those other paintings can also be sold. That all that effort was not wasted. He now has a whole back stock of crab paintings that I don't know, will probably take a long time to sell, but like this is the, this is the amazing thing about modern creativity. The, the side effects, the byproducts, the intermediate, I call this intermediate packets, also have value can also be sold at the very least can be can be shared on social media as like behind the scenes of my creative process yeah. so n no effort is wasted not one second is wasted could you imagine a world in which tiago forte's second brain gets sold for millions of dollars <laughs> it's like that's a possibility those are your quote-unquote scraps for what creates your book it's like wow that's that opens up an entirely new thinking. And so like, what advice would you give to somebody who wants to be a writer, who, who wants to be um, a videographer? What is a, a challenge or how could you get them thinking in this mindset? <clears throat> it's really something I wish a lot of creative people um, would do. It makes the creative lifestyle and career so much more sustainable, profitable, enjoyable, communal. This, this is how I would say it. I'd say whatever art you're creating, and I know even considering what you do, art is a leap for most people. It is. I don't care if you are writing emails all day. I don't care if you're just making decisions. I don't care if you're a chef. I mean, I've, I've talked to a truck driver, and once, like anyone's work, once you get into it, has artistry, has creativity. I refuse to believe, like any human job is only still being done by humans because there's creativity involved. So once you've accepted that you are creating art, <laughs> your art, if you're at the beginning, isn't good. It just isn't. You haven't yet discovered what quality is. You don't even know what quality means, much less how to produce it. Therefore, the most interesting thing of what you're doing is the story of how you're discovering it. Your personal story, your behind the scenes, you know, director's cut, uh, cutting room floor, the outtakes, the offcuts, the crumpled up pieces of paper in the waste basket. That is the most interesting part of what you're doing. Instead of hiding it as this shameful secret, which is what almost everyone does, make that the story. Share it on social media, share it with your friends, talk about it, write about it, journal about it, share it. People will want to go on your journey Right, because often you are doing what so many other people only dream of. Right, so they're living vicariously through you. They will go on your journey, even if the th actual thing you're producing is not yet good, and they don't care about it. Mm -hmm. So it's weird. It's like being a creative person, an artist, a knowledge worker. Now is a performance art. It's a performance, but you you have to embrace what is happening now, not next week, next month, next month when you're finished, when you've perfected it when you've polished it, now, like now, share it in real time is my, my uh, invocation. <laughs> Why do you think we're so unwilling or feel shame around sharing our crabs? Gosh, yeah, I think it comes from so many places. 
I mean, that's how we're raised, you know, only submit your best work, put your best foot forward. Uh, only the final grade matters. Um, in the workplace, we're really taught like what it means to be professional is to never mess up. That is almost the definition of professionalism. Th this myth that your professional success depends on an unbroken stream of perfect decisions and results and outputs, which just maybe that was the case like in the 50s or something. The world isn't that way anymore. Uh, it comes from a lot of a lot of places. And probably, maybe most of all, is our models. We tend to follow, just for obvious reasons, the most famous artists in the world, the most famous musicians, the most skilled artists, the best dancers. So you look at them, and the gap between what you're doing and what they're doing is so vast. What, who you should follow is someone who's like one step ahead of you, who's doing what, what you are doing, but like six months in the future. That is the right person to follow. And with, with social media, with the internet, you can find those people for the first time you can find someone at any stage of the journey from here to the farthest reaches of success. Yeah. So maybe this will tie in nicely. Why are you so obsessed with the Toyota production system? <laughs> oh, no. It's a real pivot, right? <laughs> Is that a pivot or not? I mean, I don't think so, but most people would. I mean, yeah, so here's, here's the thing. Um, there's this theme of like... Um, that everyone's work has value. Every industry has something to teach you. We tend to have high status fields, industries, low status ones. We always wanna be like these and kind of ignore those. And one of the low status ones is manufacturing. We look down on manufacturing, right? Oh, that was the industrial revolution. That was when you were just a cog in a machine. They didn't have you know, ping pong tables and free food and all this stuff. And we, we consciously or subconsciously, we want to distance ourselves from that, like our grandparents and great-grandparents, what they were doing, and do artistic, cool knowledge work in these tall buildings in New York City behind us, right? But manufacturing is not that way anymore. Not, manufacturing today is a super high skill, high technology, high context, and actually very humanistic uh, industry. Uh, it's well-paying. They're good jobs. They're stable. They're they're good, you know. Um, and so I've kind of been obsessed with studying Toyota, with studying lean, modern lean manufacturing. There's different like schools of thought, but Toyota was the OG. They were like the, like what do you even compare them to? They practically invented modern manufacturing. The whole philosophy. Um, and to this day, I have a tweet storm about this. We, I read this book that asserts, which I agree with, we still don't fully understand how powerful the principles of the Toyota philosophy are. Uh, and, and this is what people really miss, and I would love to write a book on this one day. Um, I call this just-in-time project management. It's basically getting just-in-time manufacturing and combining it with like knowledge work, project management because the same principles apply and they're underappreciated because we look down on manufacturing. We don't look to it for inspiration. Um, but anyway, uh, I think modern knowledge work is very like manufacturing and we can learn from it. That's fascinating. I thought it was gonna be something along the lines of the way in which the production is done is similar to an artist creating. It is. Yeah. yeah. So, so how so? So I would say, like, okay, how, how would I get into this? Um, 
think about what modern manufacturing is trying to achieve. They're trying to achieve a fantastic rate of production. Thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of pieces. It is absurd. And they're trying to have virtually every one of those items at near perfect quality. It's the ultimate quantity and quality solution, right? We don't we don't realize like back in the 50s they would call they would call it scrap because something like 10, 20, 30% of the products would be defective. You just assumed, oh, we're going to have to just throw away 10 or 20%. Today, we have lean six sigma. We have these methodologies that say, yeah, you should maybe have 0.001% or 0.0001% defects. You can actually still use those products, but the, the rate of quality, that, that's basically how you measure quality when it comes to manufacturing is defects. So they've just achieved a stupendous just quality and quantity. As knowledge workers, we have, to, we have the very same problem. We have to produce a fantastic rate of production. Think about the output that you have to have. The output of emails, the output of PDF reports, of slide presentations, of social media updates, pieces of content, like we all are all producing some kind of output. And the, the quality, like think about the quality. Can you have, maybe you can have a typo. You can't have more than one typo. Maybe your decision can be not quite right about your business. You can't afford two or three bad decisions. It's the same situation. So I don't know how deep into the details you want to go, but there are very specific solutions that Toyota and other companies developed on the production line in the physical world that we can get and apply almost directly to computer-based knowledge work. Uh, you probably want like an example, right? Yes. What do you think here? How specific can I be? Okay, so the idea of batch sizes. Okay, actually I think batch sizing is one of the, the most underrated ideas. So think about this. Okay, as knowledge workers, we don't even realize that we have batches in the first place. That, that concept has not found its way into knowledge work. A batch is simply, do you work on one item at a time all the way from beginning to end, or do you break a process into steps and do like 10 at a time, 20 at a time, 100 at a time? Which you can kind of understand, you know, kind of intuitively, but what does that even mean to knowledge work, right? Like, how would you batch process 100 emails? There's a way to do it, right? And actually, we have a, we have a blog post and a YouTube video called One Touch to Inbox Zero that is basically exactly this, applying batch processing to emails. And it's how you can process hundreds of emails a day if you need to. You said you, on Mondays, you look at your emails and you have, okay, let me just go through them, make split-second decisions as opposed to taking seconds or minutes to look over an entire email every time you get a new one. So could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so, so this is probably the, the clearest example is, you know, people do email. Like, we really have to talk about email. Email is the elephant in the room of modern productivity. Like, we've all basically collectively decided email sucks. It's the worst it's inefficient, it's, it's um, not effective. You know, when you send an email, what, it, what are the odds that that person's gonna get back to you? Um, it is, it's not a good method of communication. All sorts of things fall through the cracks. It's hard to document, it's hard to revisit, 
it is um, it's only text, it's kind of hard to work with multimedia, it has all these problems, and people will say, oh, well, it's just the way it is. I'm just gonna continue to spend, I think the average knowledge worker spends 27% of their working hours on email for the next 40 years. Let's just do that. And I'm just like, what? <laughs> like, are we just resigned to a quarter of our working lives dedicated to this thing? And so what, what, what Inbox Zero is, my approach to it, is just saying, you know, take a high velocity mass manufacturing approach to emails. Do the first step all at once, which is simply deciding one at a time, like a production line. Not going backwards, not skipping around, not stopping to think about it, just what is the next action. Don't take the action, and this is so hard. I still fall into this trap. I'm going down and processing my email and I go, oh, well this will just take two minutes. Let me just take the action. I've, I've messed up, I've ruined it. I've mixed up the stages and now all the efficiency that I was gaining from doing one kind of activity at a time is lost. It takes a real discipline to only decide what the next action is. Then you have all the next actions, but you still don't take them. You just decide when they should be done. This should be done today, next week, next month, or this should be done on my computer, this should be done next time we have a meeting, like the different contexts. Then you start scheduling, uh, scheduling them, putting them on your calendar in, in different time periods. You still don't do them. You're, you're delaying the moment of actually completing that task until you have all the information, you've considered all the options, and decided, no, this is the exact right thing for me to be working on next. I think so few people take this approach. Yeah, and how come if we're gonna be spending so much time on email for the rest of our lives, did we not take a class or a course on how to do it most effectively? Right. This, is, this is like a tragedy. To me, this, this, and there's many other things. How to manage your agenda, how to set goals, how to take digital notes. It is, like, it is criminal negligence that we do not teach this to young people. I mean, this is one of the reasons we decided to go the traditional publishing route is I was talking to educators and they're like, yeah, like you, you, you need to sort of have institutional credibility. You need big gatekeeper organizations, government agencies, media corporations to sign off on this before it even has a chance to make it into schools. Isn't that sad? It's weird in a world that is dominated by the internet I know. and that we spend all of our time on the internet, we still look at authority in that light. Do you see that changing anytime soon? If anything, going through the traditional publishing process, I'm like, no, it's not. It's changing less than I thought. Wow. Like, we're internet people. We spend just ridiculous amounts of time on the internet, which is great, has many benefits, but creates blind spots. We think the world is more egalitarian than it is. We think it's more technologically advanced. We think information is more accessible and known than it is. We think... All these blind spots are created when you spend all your time online. Most of the world does not live that way. And, and like I said, this was the reason we, it sort of like feels like we are, it's like we're crossing over into like a different dimension where things move way more slowly, like slow motion. You know, it's like, like slow motion. And the reason we've, we think it's worth it is to reach those people, those kids. You know, there's a, there's a whole kind of kid that will only be reached if it's in their third period class and their parents say learn this and their teacher says learn it and they get a grade. I am like determined, I'm like running the, the institutional gauntlet so that those people have a chance at 
at learning it. Yeah, and the where kids go today is it to TV? And do do kids today believe the authority le- is on TV or is it on YouTube? Because I think that plays a role in in twenty years where people will believe authority lies. Mm, I think so. I mean, it is changing, but we're we're really doing both. So yeah, we are you know trying to have this this nice best selling book that's credible and stuff, but we're also going all in on YouTube. Yeah, like. You know, it's like by the time these ideas make it into the classroom, they'll have, all the life will have been sucked out of them. They will be sucked dry. They'll just conform to some government standard. Right. So it's like we need to be there for awareness purposes. But then there's a secret back door, which is once they find out about it, the place I want, I want them to go, I think they will go, is YouTube. And our YouTube, I mean, we put a lot into it to be like TV. Yeah. We put a lot of work to make it. Um, to make it, we have, we have our director of content here who is, is the actual person putting in all this work, <laughs> uh, to make it exciting, engaging, fun music, sound effects, cuts between different angles, guest interviews. It's, it's we're trying to produce like a, like a kid's TV show. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the way to get to people's minds and hearts. Yes. And so back to the tweets here, <laughs> my advice to almost every creator, you're being way, way too strategic. Until you're making a million dollars on the internet, you're in beta. Take all the time and energy you're spending strategizing and iterate as fast as you possibly can. Every piece of content is a shot on goal. Kind of going back to that idea of quantity leading to quality. Yeah. Yeah, that's another spicy one. But uh, I think it's like, I just noticed, again, I think this is a pitfall of smart people. We try to try to smart. We try to outsmart things and, and end up just outsmarting ourselves. Like I just notice a lot of people keep changing their strategy right as it's about to start working. Classic example: I have a friend, and I've told him him this. He keeps starting new YouTube channels. Started a channel that was on like philosophy, just as it was starting to take off. Oh no no no! Actually, I want to talk about relationships. Whole new YouTube channel on dating. Just as that's taking off. Oh, no, 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 now YouTube channel on productivity. Oh, no, no, He keeps changing. And I, I just see all this. And I think if all those same videos that he's produced, he always does like five to ten videos per channel before moving on. If they had just been part of one channel and the channel maybe didn't even have a theme, didn't even have a name, was just his name, yeah. he would be doing incredibly well and have a really sizable audience. And that phenomenon happens all over the place. People keep switching the medium that they're on, the channel they're communicating through. They keep switching the product. Um, they keep switching something right as it's about to start taking off. Why do you think that is? Because we're used to immediate results. It's actually kind of ironic because the internet is the thing training us. You know, you put an Instagram photo within an hour you know whether it's gonna be a banger, right? Your friends are just gonna be like, fire emoji, fire, 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 or not, right? It's like instantaneous, and, and actually even faster, when you post the Instagram photo, what is the very first thing you do? Go over and see it on the feed, because you wanna see it how other people are gonna see it, right? So instantaneous gratification all the time, but then going back to how the real, real world moves slower, you know, when you switch from a consumer, instantaneous gratification, to a creator, now you are starting a business. You are creating a network. You are creating an organization, even if you're a solopreneur. 
that just moves so much slower. You have to completely disentangle yourself from those feedback loops and be patient. I mean, I, it's so cliche, right? But like, there's such an element of patience uh, because even on the internet, it takes a long time. Did, is that a lesson you learned from raising a child or how did you learn the lesson of patience to instill that into the business? For my mom. My mom is very patient. Probably on like a, it's like, okay, learning something. To actually learn something, you have to learn at a different level. So like somatically, somatically usually we learn things through modeling other people, right? Like you, you need an example of someone that just demonstrated what, like you mentioned your grandmother. Like you saw it. You probably can't explain it rationally, but you just go, oh, like my grandmother. And your whole body knows how to emulate that. Um, so that was one level, but on a, on a more kind of intellectual level, um, I think reading widely was a big one. Reading about normal business where everything is measured in years or decades, you know, don't read too many internet creators in general. Like we're not safe for your, <laughs> your, your, your sense of patience. Um, gosh, what else? I think also just doing what I, what I inherently enjoy. This is the selfish part. You know, I, I really feel, have always felt that I create content for me, like truly. It is all for me. <laughs> I am serving myself. If anyone else benefits, that's great. But I am deeply selfish in the content that I create, which makes it sustainable. Because I don't need any, like, I really feel like when I hit that publish button on WordPress, that is like, I am getting all the reward that I, that I want. 100% of the outcome is mine when I hit publish. Anything else beyond that is extra credit, uh, which just means that I, I sort of have patience, but not because I'm trying to have patience. I'm just having fun. And w when something is fun, it tends to persist for so much longer than something that, that you're trying to do simply to achieve a result. You can't compete with someone who is having fun. Yes, that is, I, I think, my all-time most popular tweet <laughs> for good reason because it is so true and it, it hits at such a deep level yeah. i think this has been a wide-ranging and beautiful conversation where i've learned so much about your peace your presence your ability to communicate the ideas in your head into the world so i just want to take a minute to thank you and really appreciate what you've done you've built a an incredible network of people and an incredible mind and heart and soul it feels like from talking to you so i'm incredibly grateful to feel that presence and hopefully people listening or watching can feel that as well it's been amazing danny definitely one of the, the the deepest interviews i've done and your preparation is outstanding it was a real pleasure thank you for being here and go check out building a second brain go follow tiago on twitter do all the things anywhere else you'd like to direct people uh, buildingasecondbrain.com is probably the, the most relevant thing. I have a book, which will probably be out by the time this is aired. So if you want to hear more, read, read the book. Yeah, go check out the book. Thank you so much, Tiago.